bring you greetings in the new year. And since the Coons family is away on a much needed break, I have the privilege of bringing the first message to you in the new year. And before we jump into that, I, I want to take a quick moment to thank you all for the thoughtful uh, Christmas cards and treats, uh, as well as the Christmas gift that many of you contributed to. Um, we are grateful for you, and we're grateful to be a part of this worshiping community. Also this morning, I want to bring you greetings from the youth ministry realm. I know not all of you keep up with what's happening uh, among the middle school and high school students at JCC, so I want to give a brief snapshot this morning. Perhaps among the most recent news, our 2021 prayer initiative is off and running. We have 74 children and youth who are being prayed for starting this week. And that is pretty incredible. Thank you to those who have volunteered to, uh, to partner with us in prayer for our youth and children. At youth group, a few weeks ago, I told the youth to buckle up because now they're being prayed for. I am confident that the Lord will affect change in your hearts and in theirs in 2021. And if you, um, if you should have any interest in joining in this uh, prayer initiative, it's, it's not too late. Uh, we want all those who would like to be involved, um, involved. So please, um, please feel free to let me know. Our middle school and high school youth continue to meet weekly on Sunday night uh, for youth group and for Bible studies. Uh, and we've seen some new faces. Uh, over half of our youth are actually coming from other area churches. And we've seen some old faces with returning college students on an extended winter break. This has brought energy and excitement uh, to the group. But more importantly, I'm hearing about how God is at work in the lives of our youth. I spoke with one of our youth just last week who said they recently recommitted their life to the Lord, making a conscious decision to go a new direction. May an ever-deepening, rich relationship with the God of the universe be our prayer for our children and youth. And I urge you, church, to not stop praying. When high school Bible study this summer and fall, we've been slowly making our way through the book of Mark. And um, in youth group, we spent some time discussing identity, which is actually the theme that Pastor Dave uh, will be introducing to us in the new year. So we explored questions like, what makes you, you? And where do people generally look for a stable and satisfying sense of self? When asked of the broader culture, we might hear responses like, my abilities, my talents, my family connections, my job, or how successful I am at my job, my gender, my sexuality, my financial stability, my possessions, my personality, 
my race, or my culture. These define who I am. And we talked about how these are good things, but they are not the central thing. Tim Keller says, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever, whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. Our hearts are idol factories where we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. A resource that I used with the youth put it this way, the, one, the only way to find a secure identity is by placing it in the God who never changes. What we asked is, are we looking for our identity horizontally or are we looking for our identity vertically? Are we defining ourselves by looking within or are we recognizing that our identity is actually bestowed on us by the God of the universe? That I am known, that I am knit together in my mother's womb, like we read from Psalm 139 this morning. That I am made in his image, that I am a child of God. That when I surrender to him, I am being transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. We as a church will be taking a look at the topic of identity in the coming weeks. But what I'll be bringing to you this morning is a bit of an intersection with where we've been in high school Bible study in the Gospel of Mark and where the youth group has been with the topic of identity. The passage this morning is taken from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And while you're looking up that passage, I want to briefly tell you where in the grander arc of Mark this story takes place. See, Mark can be divided into three sections. The first section asks this question, who is Jesus? And we're introduced to him and we see how different people and groups react to him. And at the end of this section on who is Jesus, Peter has this dramatic moment of clarity where he announces, you are the Messiah. And that launches us into the second section of the book of Mark, where Jesus begins to clarify, what does Messiah actually mean? It means he will be handed over, that he will suffer and die, and that he will rise again. And the disciples are left trying to adjust to these new expectations, these new realities that Jesus is talking about. And then we're, we're brought to the third section, which is where our text is today, which is the final week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' road to becoming king. In this section, Jesus has mounting confrontations with the authorities and the leaders in Jerusalem. And it is one of those confrontations that I want us to take at, a look at today. Let's pray together as we turn to the word. Father, we have a great privilege of coming to your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. We'll turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. Because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. As we look at this passage, several questions arise. What tax is being discussed here? And who are these Herodians? And why are they, along with the Pharisees, trying to trap Jesus? And how do we make sense of Jesus' answer, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and, to give, and give to God what is God's? Well, the tax in consideration here is sometimes referred to as the poll tax, or imperial tax in our passage, or head tax. It was a one denarius tax paid each year by every adult who was a non-Roman citizen living in a Roman province. This was in addition to other taxes that would have been paid, including property taxes and customs taxes, and um, for the Jews, a temple tax. And since the province of Judea was controlled by Rome, people living in Judea would have been subject to this tax. And it was hotly debated among the Jews whether they should pay this tax or not. Their issue with this was paying this tax would acknowledge the presence of a foreign power ruling in a land that belonged to them, that was given to them by God. And the Jewish zealot movement actually began in a response to this particular tax. There's mention of Judas the Galilean in Acts chapter 5, who was actually um, one of the zealots who led a rebellion that was then crushed by the Romans. Well, that's a little background on the tax that's being discussed here. And the Pharisees are very clever at how they introduce this. They team up with the Herodians as a way to trap Jesus. Well, the Herodians were a political party that upheld submission to Rome. They're not mentioned much in the New Testament. But as their name suggests, they were in favor of keeping Herod in power. Herod was given power by the Roman government, and so it, it follows that they would have favored taxation by Rome. 
And the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the religious purists. We, and they were generally in conflict with the leadership in the area, and they would not have favored taxation by Rome. These are two rival groups who would normally be squabbling with each other, but they both see Jesus as a threat. And so they team up against him. So after they butter Jesus up and try and flatter him with their words, they spring their trap. And Jesus is in a tough spot, a catch-22, as they say. The Pharisees and Herodians are capitalizing on a polarizing issue. And they're trying to peg Jesus, his movement, his authority, his teachings, in order to discredit him at best or eliminate him at worst. The heart of the question posed to him is one of allegiance. Do you follow the law of the land and side with the Herodians? Or do you value your religious identity and side with the Pharisees? Well, if he approves the tax, the Pharisees would say, well, shame on you for condoning any kingdom but God's. And Jesus loses credibility among the people. And if Jesus refuses to pay the tax, he would be seen by the Herodians as a rival ruler who opposes Rome and he would likely be executed. They've set a pretty clever trap. To which of us do you belong, Jesus? Where is your allegiance, and therefore your identity? And it's at this moment that Jesus asks for a coin. I love picturing one of the Pharisees having to fumble around for a coin in his pocket while Jesus patiently waits. There's a bit of situational irony here. The fact that they're able to produce this coin tells us that they're not opposed to using it, and their hypocrisy is exposed. It's as if Jesus is saying, this is the currency you deal in. So is this really about paying tax, or is there a bigger issue at stake here? The coin that was given to Jesus had the picture of Emperor Tiberius. He would have become Caesar when Jesus was about 14 years old. It would have read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The coin itself was idolatrous, claiming that Caesar had divine heritage. And some devout Jews, in fact, wouldn't even look at or touch the coin. It's then that we come to the central piece of this passage, when Jesus asks, whose image is this? The Pharisees and Herodians give the only obvious response. Well, this is Caesar's image. But the question, whose image is this, is an interesting one. Not because of the obvious answer, but because of the word image. Interestingly, it's the only passage 
that uses this word in particular in uh, the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word image would have made any Jewish listener think of the first chapter in Genesis. In Genesis 1, they would recall that the pinnacle of all creation was crafted bearing the image of its creator. That was Adam and Eve, and by extension, all of humankind. While Caesar was working to spread his image throughout the empire on the coinage of the day, God has imprinted his image on male and female from the beginning of time. So it's as if Jesus is saying, this coin is not the only thing imprinted, not the only thing here imprinted with an image. You bear the image of God. So the things that have been stamped with Caesar's image, we'll give them back to him. They belong to him, is what Jesus says. And what of the things that are stamped with God's image? Give them back to God. Give your whole selves to him. The Pharisees and Herodians are standing around squabbling over this graven image, the coin, that represents the power structures and the deities that they are contending for and against. And suddenly this isn't a conversation about where they might throw their political allegiance, but a reminder about the core of their identity. Pharisees, build the kingdom not through your religious performance, but your reliance on God. You belong to him. Herodians, build your kingdom not by vying for power, but by identifying with the one who came to serve. You belong to him. You belong to God. You bear his image. Therefore, give yourself to him. And the saddest part of this whole passage is that the Pharisees and Herodians walk away amazed. Not in awe amazed, not impressed amazed, but dumbfounded. Their response is ultimately one of disbelief rather than repentance. Church, the problem in the garden and the problem for the Jewish authorities and dare I say it, fundamentally the human problem, is a resistance to the reality that we belong to him. There are ways every day that I fail to recognize God's claim on every area of my heart and life. I know this in my head, but in my heart, In my actions, there are times when I am busy reflecting me out into the world instead of God. I'm busy promoting my image instead of his. What might it look like to render, to surrender to God what belongs to him in this new year? Well, as I was preparing for my sermon, I asked Karis and Henry this question. And they turned to me and they said, let him take care of us. 
Let him love us. What a perfect answer. From now on, my kids will be ghostwriting my sermon. Um, I love that in their response is both a posture of surrender and of receiving. Let him take care of us and let him love us. It echoes question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So much of following after Jesus comes down to a life of surrender. My time, my money, my family, my job, my talents, it all belongs to him because I belong to him. And that, church, is good news. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, puts it this way. We are often hindered from giving up our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved relatives and friends. But we need have no such fears. Our Lord came not to destroy, but to save. Everything is safe which we commit to him, and nothing is really safe which is not so committed. What might it look like to own our identity as creatures created in his image and to surrender every area of our lives to him in the new year? To allow us to be reshaped, reformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. To own the reality that we belong to him. To honor his authority and begin uncovering our true identity. This is an ongoing work of the Spirit. Well, last week, Pastor Dave challenged us to spend some time in reflection. And this week, as an extension of that, I'd like us to consider asking God, what's one area where, in which he may be inviting us to surrender to him in the new year? As you do this, invite the Holy Spirit into this process. Are there areas of your life you are withholding out of fear? Are there places you need to trust God more deeply in the unknown? Do you need help letting go of control in a relationship or bringing to light an area of sin or brokenness? And in surrendering our hearts and lives to him, we give back what is rightfully his. And we let him chisel us more and more into our true identity, an identity rooted in the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us in your image. 
and that we belong to you. And Lord, as we step into 2021, may you bring an awareness to us of those areas of our lives where you stand waiting to shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.